this is recording. RTI International Center for Forensic Science presents Just Science. Welcome to Just Science, a podcast for forensic science professionals and anyone who is interested in learning more about how real crime laboratories work. In episode three of the DNA season, Just Science interviews Julie Sikorsky, Forensic Biology Unit Manager at the Palm Beach County Sheriff's Office, about her experience introducing an efficiency program into her lab. Palm Beach County Sheriff's Office serves over 30 agencies. With such a large client base, capacity and efficiency are critical for their success. In order to improve efficiency in her lab, Julie Sikorsky implemented Lean Six Sigma. Through this program, they have cut down their backlog and reduced their turnaround time by 45%. Listen in as she discusses laboratory efficiency, the value of open communication, and creating a culture of change in this episode of Just Science. This season is funded by the National Institute of Justice's Forensic Technology Center of Excellence. Here's your host, Dr. John Morgan. Hello and welcome to Just Science, the podcast for forensic science professionals. I'm your host, John Morgan, with RTI's Forensic Technology Center of Excellence, a program of the National Institute of Justice. With us today, we're at the uh, 2019 American Society of Crime Laboratory Directors meeting in St. Louis. We have Julie Sikorsky, who is with the Palm Beach County Sheriff's Office, and she uh, is the Forensic Biology Unit Manager there. She also happens to be a green belt, Lean Six Sigma, and as a fellow of the American Board of Criminalistics, she's actually worked on the ABC Credentials Committee as a certified technical assessor under ISO 17025 for forensic testing laboratories and peer reviews articles for the Journal of uh, Forensic Science International Genetics. Welcome to the program, Julie. Thank you so much. I'm glad to be here. You've been with Palm Beach for a while. How did you come to get involved in forensic science and, and DNA stuff? I am a nerd. Absolutely. Born and bred nerd. I've loved science forever. And I actually started off pre-med like I think a lot of us do. And just not to date myself, but when I went to college, there was really no forensic science. I predate CSI. So I did my undergrad. Uh, my original degree was in biochemistry, or my original major. I only changed once, which is pretty good. And I was taking a lab class, and we were looking at a technique in this biochemistry lab class called restriction fragment length polymorphism. And I was like, oh, this is kind of neat. And we had to do a report on one of the techniques we used in this lab class. So I picked that one went to a library, no no real internet, and uh, I found a book by Lauren T. Kirby called DNA Fingerprinting, and I couldn't put it down. And I said, I think this is what I want to do. So I uh, called up a friend, and I got a look at the San Diego PD crime lab DNA unit, and the guy's like, PCR, that's where it's at, get PCR experience. So literally same day, came back, changed my major to molecular biology. I said, where can I get P- PCR experience? Who can I volunteer with? You can have all my time. And I, I ended up volunteering at the medical school at UC San Diego and years of PCR experience there and went for my master's at Marshall University because at that point in time, we didn't have a lot of options. Sure, yeah. Even today, there are very few. I don't think any FEPAC right. accredited universities out west. Yes, yeah. mm-hmm. yes. So I was just very, very fortunate to kind of have that experience. And I've been in this field now for next week. It'll be 17 years and it has 
changed my life. I'm so passionate about it. And every day is different. Every day is interesting. And the people I meet are absolutely amazing. A little more humid in Palm Beach than San Diego. Slightly, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Less traffic, though. Okay. Well, as long as you're able to adapt, that, that's good. So one of the things that, of course, has been happening over the years is that we've gone from where DNA was in its infancy back, you know, 20 years ago, and RFLP was just a, even a completely different technique. And uh, the demand for DNA has just grown exponentially year after year, and still I don't think shows any signs of stopping, even as we're moving in to like next generation sequencing and, and that sort of thing. It's becoming harder and harder for labs to kind of keep up from an efficiency perspective. Absolutely. We're seeing that um, we're seeing that year over year increase in the request that we're getting for DNA analysis. And everybody's kind of heard of that CSI effect, which is thank you to the TV shows and the publication from just the general public being able to see what forensic science is capable of. But the, you know, the judicial system and coming to expect that. But what we're also seeing is as part of these efficiency initiatives that laboratories are doing, there's some sort of economic principle that Dr. Paul Speaker talks about where the better you are, the more demand you're going to have. And we're absolutely seeing that. Oh, absolutely. And, uh, well, one of the things that uh, is an advantage for you and that you're an, an acolyte of C.C. Krause, who, you know, was at Palm Beach for a long time, and uh, we actually had her on Just Science yeah, uh, last year. Absolutely. She did a fantastic job. Well, she's my mentor and friend, so... And this has been something that's close to her heart in terms of in improving DNA capacity, improving the efficiency of the laboratories to be able to use their capacity wisely. And the interest that you had personally led to you getting involved in Lean Six Sigma. Now, did, did your work and personal development start with Lean Six Sigma, or how, you know, what was your kind of path to getting involved in efficiency improvement in the DNA lab? Well, I, I think as most labs can compare to us with these giant backlogs that we have, and there's got to be a better way, and we keep trying different things. So I think our, our initial work with efficiency improvement came with a 2003 NIJ grant, and it, was, it wasn't the CBER grant at the time, the Capacity Enhancement Backlog Reduction Grant at that point in time. It was a no-suspect backlog reduction grant, and so we actually started outsourcing no-suspect cases at that point in time. And I think that was kind of the first taste we had at capacity enhancement or just, just some efficiency initiatives that we could start doing. And we as a lab were very progressive. And Dr. Kraus, she's amazing at looking at these opportunities. I mean, she's a researcher by trade and forensic scientist kind of by accident. And so she was always looking at these grant opportunities. And then our kind of our next major efficiency initiative came with a grant that allowed us to actually open a screening laboratory in our South County. Because one thing about PBSO is we service over 30 agencies. And all of those agencies bring their DNA evidence to us. We're the DNA laboratory for the county. And the screening portion is probably the most complex and unpredictable part of the DNA process where you don't know what you're going to get. I mean, you kind of have an idea, but you don't really know. So you don't know what you're going to get. You don't know how long it's going to take. You don't know what you're going to find. And so that part is very unpredictable. So it's really hard to develop an efficient uh, laboratory process when, you, when you've got kind of this unknown. So what we did was we applied for a grant that allowed us to help the Boca Raton Police Services Department open a laboratory in South County. We, we mentored their staff and trained their initial staff, but they're completely separate from the Palm Beach County Sheriff's Office. And so they service, uh, give screening services to three South County agencies, the Boca Raton Police Services, who opened it, Delray Beach, and Boynton Beach Police Departments. 
and then there are the samples for DNA are actually shuttled up to us, and we would do DNA analysis on those, and those cases do get prioritized because they're pre-screened. Yeah, and so for folks listening at home, uh, they're actually, uh, Julie and Cece actually did a report for FTCOE looking as of today, as of in the, in the last year or so, kind of updating the impact of that efficiency improvement program with Boca Raton and, and demonstrating that there's been an enormous improvement in the, uh, uh, in the processing of those cases coming out of those agencies as a result of that screening program. Absolutely. And, uh, and you know, it's really a lessons learned paper as well. It's if you want to take that idea and implement mm-hmm. it in your own county or your own area, it's really kind of a how-to and what not to do and what to expect, and then it's definitely worth it. And it's very nice of you to say that NIJ had foresight at the time. We, uh, I, was, I started at NIJ at the beginning of 2002, and uh, we were really struggling to get a picture of what was going on out there. And actually, uh, C.C. Kraus and some of the other lab directors who were really visionary about what DNA could become were instrumental in helping figure out exactly what NIJ should be doing at that time and, and even moving it past the no suspect grants, yeah. you know, the whole idea that, hey, this is a broader issue where there's gonna, they're going to need to be a completely different approach to how we build capacity. I compared it to the atomic bomb for forensic science or criminal justice, right? It just <laughs> changed everything. It did. It did, yeah. And, and it's, it's interesting where these efficiency improvements need to be and where you all recognize those deficiencies were mm-hmm. and how to reshape that funding and, and how we could use that funding. And, you know, the no suspect cases, we didn't process cases the same way back in the early 2000s. No suspect cases kind of fell to the wayside. Touch DNA really hadn't taken hold yet. So things were different. And NIJ has grown and evolved right along with the discipline. So from your perspective, so you were involved in the efficiency improvement program with Boca Raton. You've obviously been working in the forensic biology laboratory for a number of years and facing the backlogs or I guess let's just say increased caseloads. I know backlog is now one of those words that isn't necessarily as precise as people would like. Let's put it that way. You're right. Yeah. And I, I mean, I don't know how you all characterize it. I mean, do you all, you all think about caseload and turnaround time or how do you all view it? So uh, one thing, I think people are afraid of the word backlog, and I don't think they need to be afraid of it. I think they just need to know what it is. And what I was most surprised about is most laboratories don't actually know truly what their backlog is because they don't know really how they define it. Because one thing when you're talking to different laboratories, they each have their own definition of a backlog. So someone could tell you, oh, my backlog's under 100, but what does that 100 actually mean? And most times you're comparing apples to oranges because they're talking about, oh, we have 100 cases that aren't assigned to an analyst, but you know we've got 300 in process. So it's really a tricky term, but it's not really something that should be feared because it means you have a demand and it allows you to make appropriate changes in order to regulate uh, how your case processes move and justify additional resources. And um, it's just something that I think we shouldn't be afraid of, but we really need to know more about. And you really have to figure out what that backlog number means. And NIJ really, I think they've gotten the closest to helping laboratories kind of come up with a, uh, a solid definition where they say anything that hasn't had a report issued in 30 days is considered on your backlog. And I think laboratories can take kind of notice of that and, and develop their same backlog terms right around that. I know laboratories don't necessarily like to use the 30-day turnaround time bar, but uh, we use an 80-day turnaround time for our internal backlog calculation. But for grant reporting, we, we adapt. So I, I think it's backlogs are something that 
they exist, we know they exist, and what can we do to decrease them or just become more productive so that they, they don't feel so heavy on our shoulders. One of the things that, obviously, you're a, an acolyte of the Lean Six Sigma approach, and uh, we will also give credit to Tim Kupferschmidt and Sorensen for pressing those principles uh, with the forensic science community. True confessions here. I always have one, at least one per podcast episode. <laughs> so one of them is, is that I've always been kind of a skeptic of Lean Six Sigma in forensic science. So I, I come from a material science background, and one of the things I did was semiconductor work before coming to the Justice oh, Department. Wow. Yeah. And, uh, and there were all sorts of trendy things. There were, you know, the total quality management and things like that. When I hear Lean Six Sigma, I identify it with a very particular approach to semiconductor processing. And there it's just like, if the silicon ain't clean <laughs> and, you, and you have not, you know, doped it exactly right with the right, just exactly the right pattern and so on and so forth, it's a problem. And so you need to have so few errors that you know, you had a lean six sigma. You need to be six sigma down yes. in terms of the number of errors Defects, you're going to make. Yes. Yeah, exactly. On the system level. And that conception of it has never made sense to me in forensic science because, and even in your abstract for the paper today, you were talking about the idea of we're supposed to be perfectionists. You know, yeah. we're expecting per perfection from forensic science. We don't, you know, nobody's perfect. Nobody's perfect. So, but what you're doing with lean six sigma is actually very different from my prejudice coming in. And Lean Six Sigma is a business principle above all else. I mean, it was developed by Toyota and Mo Motorola companies. And what we've come to realize is that it is kind of a one-size-fits-all. It really doesn't matter the type of business you apply it to. And, and we, we're a difficult nut to crack. I mean, forensics is really strange because we don't make a profit. We're not an economy. Like, you can't really measure a lot about us. And we're not driven by a bottom line. So... Is something like Lean Six Sigma actually going to work in that type of a, dare I say, business? But we are above all else. We are a business. You can look at the product. You don't pay for our services, but you put in requests. We have customers. We have a product that we deliver. We have multiple stakeholders. All of the terms that are used in Lean Six Sigma do actually apply to crime laboratories. And I do have to give kudos to, to Sorensen for basically recognizing that. And I, I don't know if they were the first, but they were certainly the first people we heard about. I can remember attending Louisiana's uh, talk where they had implemented Lean Six Sigma and just being blown away. And my first reaction is, heck no. I'm not going to be working on teams that are going to be on these rotations that are going to be a couple days long. You can tell me that it works, but, and I'm amazed at your results. I really am, but I, that's no. And of course, at that point in time, I was an analyst. I was an analyst for 10 years and I wasn't a manager, but I still, and I saw this talk a couple times and I was like, you know what? There's got to be something to this. So when I did promote to being a manager, I actually started looking into it, and I kind of started letting the staff know, letting the team know that this was something I was going to look into, kind of getting them used to the idea. We had some skepticism, but I really built it up as something that we all feel this backlog. It causes a lot of stress. What if there's something that could help us be better? Mm -hmm. And I kind of hyped it up a little bit, and I honestly... I, you know, Googled Lean Six Sigma and read about it, and it's amazing. It sounds amazing. The potential sounds amazing. Boy, was I not prepared for actually what it was. I figured we'd have this team of individuals, and they could do casework when Lean Six Sigma team wasn't here, and they could still get casework done while we were doing this project. Oh, no, no, no. This Lean Six Sigma takes a lot of time and dedication, and 
it's very hard. But it's one of those things, and there's, it's a five-step process, and it's really data-driven. And it's all about change management. It's about creating a culture in your laboratory that embraces change. I mean, at the heart of it, that's really, really what it is. And it might not seem like it would translate well into the forensic science arena. And specifically, we did our DNA unit, but it, it translates beautifully because data is data. And we've got plenty of it, especially in forensic science, because we're constantly having to justify numbers and budgets and things like that. So we, it's really amenable to that process. And the conclusions you get from this data analysis during Lean Six Sigma lead you to these kind of realizations of, if I do it this way, I can improve that process and that process, get rid of some of that waste, those unnecessary steps, speed it up. I mean, our turnaround times have decreased by 45%. I mean, we went from a turnaround time of 150 days to 83 days. And, mm -hmm. and you know, we're hoping to get even lower than that as soon as we can get some of our backlog samples gone because some of that, that's lead time too. That's stuff where it's just waiting to be assigned. I mean, our, our average DNA case output has increased by 76%. Mm -hmm. And that's only with one additional DNA uh, analyst added to the mix when you kind of net out our gains and losses there. So I know it works. I know these efficiency improvements have worked. So uh, I'm comparing it right around the time Lean Six Sigma was really starting to become a thing. The Canadians did a process mapping exercise across their forensic science organizations. And I don't think they used a whole lot of Lean Six Sigma, but they definitely kind of did, right? Yeah. The whole point was, you know, why are you waiting two weeks here? <laughs> you know, and understanding those bottlenecks yes. and what the system, how the system really works. Yes, and and uh, value stream mapping, process mapping, that's literally the first step in Lean Six Sigma. It's like figure out your process and then figure out where your bottlenecks are occurring and figure out why they're occurring. And that really helps you actually develop and focus your project because sometimes projects can be too big. You see bottlenecks all over the place, but if you just want to tackle one area and say, how can I improve this? And you might notice you improve one area and then the bottleneck shifts and you're kind of chasing this bottleneck. And that's why these projects take a long time because you really have to stand back and take a holistic look at your at your process and, and you also have to kind of abandon any prejudice with like, this is the way we have to do it. This is this is the way we've done it for all of these years. There's nothing wrong with it, but we can always improve. We, we can move in a good direction and we owe it to the, the communities we serve. We owe it to give them their DNA, you know, in under six months, let's right. just face it. I mean, our law enforcement needs this information to do investigations. And, and the reasons we do what we do, I mean, the reason we all got into this, yes, I'm a science nerd, but above all else, I'm concerned with public safety. I want people to feel safe. And by doing my job better, I'm fulfilling that that need for myself. And, and it's, it's our why for our unit. It's like we want to provide high-quality DNA work to our customers. And this was one way we could achieve that. So understanding the process is definitely an important step. One of the things I think is really underappreciated is the importance of engagement with the individuals who are parts of the process. You know, I, I think, you know, we talk a lot about, you know, where uh, productivity improvements should be occurring, and we're very heavily dependent upon, like, service and information industries. And forensic science is definitely very much of a service industry, very much of an inf information-centric kind of industry. And I think one of the things that needs to happen is, you know, where do I fit in this process? How do I view it in terms of my inputs and outputs? 
And am I really thinking about whether I'm positioned well? I mean, am I designing my job well enough? You know, and I think that that's that's kind of important here is to have that engagement at the individual level in these processes. They can input into it and they can also buy into it. Absolutely. And and my talk here at ASCLAD was all about creating a culture of change. And in order to create a culture of change or a culture that that accepts or embraces change, you need to empower your people. And, and what that is about is kind of bringing that awareness to the individual level. So it's about removing management kind of as the buck stops here type person who's making all the decisions and rather moving that decision-making process to the grassroots level, to the people who are actually facing these problems on a daily basis. So please redesign your job. How can you do your job better? And I can't tell you how you can do your job better. I sit in an office and I put out fires all day or I'm writing grants or I'm doing something that is unrelated to running a 3500. So how would you rewrite your job? How, how are you better functioning? And also getting just external inputs because sometimes you can't see the forest through the trees and just having someone else say, hey, don't you think that's a better way to do your job and getting a little bit of external input. But the bottom line is taking it actually away from the management decision and making it more focused on the individual and on the team itself. Like, how would the team solve this problem? They're the, the ones doing it. They're the process owners. They're the ones doing this casework on a day-in and day-out basis. And the bottom line is Lean Six Sigma is absolutely, that is what it's about. It's about people and their ability to change, adapt, and improve. And it's about having a well-managed change process. So one of the things that I've certainly encountered in these kinds of situations is that, you know, some people really jump in and they love it. Right. And others, they they might be fearful. uh, They might be intimidated. You know, they might just not understand exactly what you're talking about. They don't necessarily know how they plug in with the people on either side of them in a process. Did you all encounter that much of that within PBSO? And how did you kind of bring those folks along in a successful way? You bring up a very, very important point, because it was one thing that um, we had Sorensen come in to facilitate this project. And they kept saying, you need to communicate, 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 because with Lean Six Sigma, there can be too many cooks in the kitchen. Like mm-hmm. you need a very direct team to deal with a lot of these problems that, that are going to be the change agents. Not everybody can be in the room at the same time. One of the critical pieces of advice was you need to make sure everybody is informed. And when you're communicating, you're not communicating enough. If you're over communicating, still communicate more. And it's so that these people who are not part of the process aren't fearful that you're doing something behind closed doors that's going to impact them in a negative way. Because change is hard. Change is extremely hard. After our first project, we've done a second Lean Six Sigma project, and we learned a lot from that experience. And we learned that we didn't communicate enough during that first project, and we did create some hard feelings, a little bit of resistance, actually, a lot of resistance. And we needed to do better the second time around. So now we actually have this really uh, short little book that everybody gets to read when they're new to the laboratory. And the book kind of discusses, you know, what is Lean Six Sigma? It's really not a scary thing. And what can it do for me? And it's a, it's a great little kind of tool so that you can kind of decrease that fear level. And if they're not in the room experiencing the change for that project, they might be in for something else. But it's something to like trust the process, just, just trust it. And what happens in Lean Six Sigma is you, you have this main team, but you also reach out to all of the stakeholders, all of the customers. And DNA analysts themselves are customers or stakeholders in their own process. So we want people's opinions. If we need to improve a process, certainly 
I can't do that myself. The Lean Six Sigma team who's in charge of the process, they might have some great ideas, but they don't represent 100% of the staff. So we might bring them all in to have brainstorming sessions to solve a problem. And so that, that really is kind of the beauty of the Lean Six Sigma process. It's so methodical and so well developed out that some of these these concerns actually get negated when you're in the process, but I think you need to be self-aware in the beginning. Like You need to give them the foundation of what Lean Six Sigma is and what's it going to do for me. And, and the bottom line is it's going to make your life easier. You're going to have more buy-in and ownership into the process because you're helping to create it. So would you say that what Palm Beach has done, is it is it 100 innovations or is it, a, is it more that a few of them that you found during the process really helped to make most of the difference? I mean, how would you characterize the things that came out of Lean Six Sigma? So our first project was really big. We looked at the entire DNA process, like from soup to nuts, literally from extraction all the way through interpretation. So that was a lot of changes in there. And, it, and, and what I guess year was that? That was in 2015. Okay. And let me back up and say we didn't change the way we were doing the technical processes. What we did was we looked at our value stream map, our process map, and said, okay, where do our inefficiencies exist? Where can we be better? And so we're not trying to change the way people do their work. We're just trying to make it better. So instead of having something sit on somebody's desk waiting, why can't we put it in a centralized location where people can see it and maybe it'll get done faster? So there are a lot of small changes we made that added up to a really, really large product. Mm -hmm. And the way we're doing our process now actually isn't the same way we were doing it back in 2015 when we got out of this project because we embrace Kaizen or continuous improvement. And so it is through these so-called small changes that we can see a lot of improvement. So you don't need to make these massive changes. We did in our first project. Mm -hmm. Then we actually addressed the serology portion of our processing with a second in-house kind of mini project because our scope got too big to do both of them at the same time with that first project. And we sat back and we were able to do that ourselves because at that point in time, we had several staff members that were green belts and we could do that on our own. It was a small project. And then along the way, we we recognized other areas we could make small changes in, small improvements in. And then that kind of helped change our culture to one that readily accepts change. And we honestly look for it now. We're like, how can we make this better? We don't settle for the status quo any longer. And so our most recent project, which was in 2017, was actually looking at the evidence request process and how cases are, are processed and assigned. And you know, all these projects are difficult because change is hard, but it wasn't as hard as it was in the beginning because we had already adapted this culture that was more receptive of change. Mm -hmm. So how did it work with respect to some of the, because there have been significant changes in the technology. Uh, we actually just did a podcast on a, a group that had, had just uh, implemented robotics oh, right uh -huh. on the front end and that had abandoned a lot of the screening, the, ser the serology screening and yes. gone to direct to DNA. And those are like big changes. Yes. How did, uh, are you all doing robotics now? And how did that fit in with what you were doing in Lead Six Sigma? So we've actually, we're kind of, we're ahead of the game. We started doing robotics in 2003. So we're, we're a friend of robotics, but one of the ironic things is we actually backpedaled. We took out robotics when we went through Lean Six Sigma because one of the things you'll realize in Lean Six Sigma is that small batches are actually more efficient than doing a giant large batch, at least for our laboratory because we're a small to medium-sized laboratory. So we actually got rid of our giant robot. So we have about uh, six and a half DNA analysts right now. We service about 
1.4 million people in our county. So small to medium-sized lab, and we actually realized we didn't need these giant robotic systems. So we have smaller ones that can do what we call smaller batches. Right. So, right. But to, to your point, when you implement new technologies, so one of the things uh, we implemented StarMix or STRMix to, to do probabilistic genotyping. And the impact of that implementation could certainly change what we created in 2015 because we were doing manual interpretation for all of our samples. We didn't know what the effect of that implementation would have. So what did we do? We went back to our Lean Six Sigma roots and we conducted a, a measure step. We didn't have to go back to it and do a whole project, but we looked, how long is it taking us now with, with the StarMix software? What does that process now look like? Do we need to adapt to that new technology? Do we need to, to look at, is it increasing our review time so that we need to account for that in our process? And, and thankfully, with, with the implementation of, of STRMix, while, while it, was, um, it caused us to be longer in the beginning, we modified our process in the beginning, but we were able to go back to our original four-day rotation, and that's what we have now, and found out we are actually more efficient with the STR mix on board. So one of the things that also comes to mind is the fact that there is a tension between efficiency and quality. And I'll take an example from a different discipline that, that I've encountered recently. ATF is really putting a lot of strictures onto laboratories in terms of turnaround time on firearms evidence. It's like, you get it done in 48 months or you're getting off Nibin. And that's, that's maybe unfair because they are trying to go through a process for people to be able to adjust to that turnaround time. But they're really very focused on efficiency. And are they really losing sight of the fact that having quality work is, in some respects, going to, in the long run, give a lot more impetus behind firearms identification nationally? I mean, did you all feel like you had given up anything? Or was there concern that you were giving up things on the quality side as you developed some of these efficiency measures? It's important you bring this up because at the very outset, quality was one thing we said we would not would absolutely not sacrifice. So we kind of had this Venn diagram between, you know, quality, cost, and speed, and quality was always up there. We weren't going to do anything with quality. That had to exist. We weren't going to, we would not change our process if it affected quality at all, because if you don't have quality, you have nothing. So what we did was we kept that quality piece solid, and then we worked around it. And so when I talk about this measure phase of Lean Six Sigma, it follows this um, define, measure, improve, and control mm -hmm. phases. And with the, the measure phase, you're simply going around literally with stopwatches. And you're measuring how long it takes someone to do an interpretation on a case. How long it takes someone to, to do each part of the process. And then what you do when you build your Lean Six Sigma process is you're taking, you're looking at the low and the high ends, and you're designing a process that can accommodate that. So you don't sacrifice the quality. So most of the time with DNA, the concern is in the interpretation. If I don't have enough time to interpret, am I going to take shortcuts or am I not really going to interpret this profile to its fullest extent? But when you're designing your, your system with Lean Six Sigma, you take all of those variations that can occur with a case into account. So you build a process that actually it has the same level of quality that you had initially. And it some people have 
a hard time believing that because I've heard the same criticisms. I actually, uh, Dr. Kraus was really, really nervous in the beginning because sometimes we'd get these really complicated cold cases and, and they would need a little bit more TLC from an analyst. And, you know, we had to step back and say, you know what, 90% of our cases, they fit really nicely within the mold. But can we create this flexibility if we get some of these, these cases that do need more TLC, that do need a little bit more time in order to maintain that quality? And we were able to do that because while Lean Six Sigma is a standardized way of operation, you can build in flexibility parameters. If we have what we call an on-deck box where the analysts are taking a certain number of cases and they have a day and a half to interpret these cases, but if they don't finish interpreting by the end of that day and a half, they actually take a little magnet with a case number on it, put it up on a board, and the next analyst group that's coming through will take that down because we don't want to compromise the quality of the cases coming through, so we're just going to move that along so that we can we can make sure every case gets the proper attention. And to some extent, you have two different advantages. One is you're conscious about what you're doing, you know. And the other is, is, as you become more sophisticated, you can use more sophisticated tools. You know, you can be, you know, queuing theory or whatever else it is to try to understand how to put those into the flow so that you're still going to maintain overall efficiency. Right. <laughs> so one of the things about control, and, and I love Paul's speaker because he's helping to provide a common language of measurement. Mm -hmm. And that really is, you are, you know, it, it's, it's probably a little bit of an aphorism, but there's some truth to it. You are kind of what you measure. You're, you're yes. going to get you know, and so how do you all develop metrics in your performance that allow you to have the control you need without it being intrusive or or kind of a, a metrics for their own sake, which I, I, this really upsets me because <laughs> we do that now, right? Because we can measure so much, yes. you know, and we have computers to, to put it all in. And so we, we overdo control. Absolutely. And and I think you, there's a fine line there because if, if you ask my staff, they're like, we are constantly entering metrics. In all honesty, during the measure process, we actually had to incorporate the time it takes the staff to input all of the numbers that we need to make sure we're tracking. And those numbers are so important. They're so important for many, many reasons, you know, not just so that we can give really cool presentations that tell you how awesome we are, but also just for the justification for moving forward. And we actually, I designed the metrics that I currently use. I adapted a program that was pre-existing my position. It was designed for the Foresight program. The irony is we're not participating yet in Foresight, but I think we're oh, moving tisk, there. Tisk. Oh, oh, I know, mm -hmm. I know, I know. We're, we're going to do it, though, even if it's just the DNA unit, because mm -hmm. we are tracking these metrics. And I think there's some really valuable information we can get out of there. You can ask my team. We're, I'm a data person. Like, I love, you can't argue with data. I mean, it, it does such a good job of telling a story when you don't need to believe the person. You can believe these numbers. And yes, we track a lot of metrics. And I'm really, really conscious of if I need another metric tracked, I, I sit back and I'm like, do I really need this? Or is this a nice to have? Or is this a, a need to have? And, you know, the, um, a couple years ago, we added, was there a sexual assault kit analyzed? because there was a national concern about that. And I didn't know one day somebody might ask me for those numbers. And so we now track that. And I'm so glad we did because I've gotten called multiple times. It says, hey, you know, how many sexual assault kits did we analyze in a, in a period of time? Mm -hmm. And I'm able to pull that number. Well, that's kind of cool. So are you all, do you all have an active Lean Six Sigma project going on now to look at a particular element of the operation? Or where are you heading in Palm Beach with it? So right now we don't have an active project going on. We, we have 
so many validation projects going on right now. Uh, we do need to take breaks every now and then from Lean Six Sigma, although we always embrace Kaizen, which is you know continuous improvement. Every day we look for things. We do have what we call a job jar and a solution fridge in our office. And it allows the analysts at any point in time, if they think of you know a process we have that could be better, they literally can put it on a sticky and, and put it in the job jar and say, hey, we may want to look at this for a future project. And then, you know, solution fridge, we just have, hey, you know what, this is really cumbersome. I don't really like doing this, or why are we doing this? Put it up there, and we have these uh, days, we call them process improvement days, where we stop all casework, and we sit in a room, and we talk about these stickies that are put up there, and we also give the analysts just kind of time to What's working? What's not working? What can we What can we do? So while we don't have anything formal going on, we have we always are looking for ways to improve, ways to to keep that kind of change momentum going on, so we don't lose that culture that we've come to to know and love. That I think a lot of people look at us and they're like, "Wow, you guys change all the time. I can't get anybody to change." Um, so that was really the focus of my talk: is you know, empower your people, and if they own the change. And the change doesn't have to happen to them. They're not victims of change, but they're, they turn into those advocates of change, which is what Lean Six Sigma did to us. The results are amazing. Well, there does seem to be lots of interest in the community more, more broadly in Lean Six Sigma. Uh, I don't think I've been to an AskLad meeting in recent years when there wasn't something going on with respect to trying to kind of promulgate the principles of Lean Six Sigma or talk about ways to apply it. And so... It certainly hasn't slowed down from the overall forensic science community perspective. Right. And I actually tried to downplay it a little bit in my talk because I think you hear it so often and you get the kind of the groan. They're like, yes, we know it works. Are we, you know, or no, it didn't work for us. And I tried to downplay it because I don't think you have to go through a Lean Six Sigma process in order to change your culture in your lab. But for us, it certainly did help. And the one thing that, that really, you know, makes me say, okay, it's a good thing, right? And, and that is that it's a structure. Yes. You know what I mean? It's just, you know, this is how you're going to go about it. It gives you a way to approach these process problems and these organizational problems in a, in a rigorous manner. Right. And it's uh, it's definitely formulaic. And I believe I left out a letter when I was saying DMAIC before. I believe I left out analyze, D-M-A-I-C. So mm -hmm. I want to make sure I have a green belt so I, I cannot disrespect the Lean Six Sigma. So. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, you've done an excellent job representing Lean Six Sigma today. <laughs> yeah, I can't say enough about it. And uh, one of the things we did was we asked our staff, you know, once the dust settled, like, what did you think about this? Because I wasn't going to mm -hmm. ask them while they were in the thick of it because everybody was pretty miserable. I mean, there were tears when we went through this thing. And in the beginning, we, we did actually do a morale survey because that was one of the things everyone said, oh, this is going to increase your morale. So we did one at the beginning. We did one in the middle. And the company was like, you're going to see a major, like, bottoming out in the middle because it's hard. You're going kind of, you're, you know, Winston Churchill says, if you're going through hell, keep on going. And that's where we were. And so we kept going, let the dust settle. And so we did the survey at the end, and we got these amazing quotes from like the, the analysts that they now feel like we have this, this major culture change, the morale is higher, they're empowered to make suggestions and changes, and they can work and think together. So I think, you know, as far as from a management perspective and a productivity perspective for an agency, yeah, it's some obvious gains for them because, you know, turnaround times are down, backlogs are down, but I think also from 
you know, a team perspective, it brought us closer together. And I think it made us happier when we do our job. We, we definitely have a sense of satisfaction now. And, you know, just one of the other side benefits of it is when someone goes on vacation, there are no cases sitting on their desk waiting for them when they come back. Their desk is clean. And that's something I never have experienced before as an analyst because we, we always okay. had cases that just kept going. So I really think overall everybody benefits. The last thing I think is of interest, I think, here is also kind of the depth to which you all committed to it. You know, I think sometimes it's very difficult for one individual goes off and gets some Lean Six Sigma training and they come back and they're like, look, look, everybody. But you're, I mean, you have several people who are green belts. Green belts. Yes. And you you brought in Sorensen. I assume you actually, and you had some executive buy-in too. Yes, absolutely. So there were a lot of elements that made it successful and made it so it was possible for you at all to do it. You absolutely need that buy-in, 100%, because it is so hard. And if you don't have that support from upper management, they're not going to understand why you're pulling people off of casework and letting your backlog grow while you're going through this process. You obviously need buy-in from the staff because they will refuse to take what you've learned from Lean Six Sigma and implement that if you don't involve them. So it really is, it's a tricky, it's a tricky thing. Okay. Our guest today has been Julie Sikorsky, who is the Palm Beach County Forensic Biology Unit Manager. Julie, thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me. And thank you at home or in your car or wherever you're listening to Just Science for uh, downloading and listening to us today. Please share information about Just Science and all the other products of the Forensic Technology Center of Excellence with your friends and colleagues. All of these resources are free and designed to improve the ability of forensic scientists to do their job more effectively, more efficiently, whether it be through Lean Six Sigma or any other mechanism. Thank you very much for listening today. Next week, Just Science interviews Dr. Barbara Ray Venture about investigative genetic genealogy and its role in forensic science. Opinions or points of views expressed in this podcast represent a consensus of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of its funding. Mm-hmm.